Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of SEPAD Pod, the sectarianism, proxies, and desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Maybon, and this is the very first podcast of a new decade, the very first podcast of 2020. And I'm really pleased and excited that it is with someone who we've been trying to coordinate diaries with for most of 2019. I'm really delighted that Mona Harb is joining us today to talk about her work, her career, and and a range of different disciplinary issues. Mona, as I'm sure many of you know, is AUB Professor of Urban Studies and Politics in Beirut, obviously, at the American University. Mona, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Simon, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here and to start this uh, academic, I mean, this civil year with you. Uh, the pleasure is all ours, Mona. I know a number of people are very excited to hear about about your journey. So, so let's start at, at the beginning of, of of this, if I may, and and ask what got you interested in in studying politics and and urban studies and and these areas more broadly. Mm. Well, uh, I was trained in architecture at the American University of Beirut, and um, I was interested, um, I would say, as a student in um, issues pertaining to city making, uh, decision making about the city, who decides what uh, and on what basis cities look the way they do. So uh, this was something I carried with me when I embarked on a master's in urbanism. I did that in Beirut at, uh, at the Institute of Urbanism, which was just uh, launched at the time at the ALBA, uh, Académie Libanaise des Beaux-Arts, and it was largely subsidized by, um, uh, French, uh, by the French government, which enabled a lot of French professors to come and teach in that master's. And I would say it, it all the intersection between the urban and politics started there, I was lucky to be exposed to uh, very interesting urban thinkers from France whose um, approach to, to, I would say, urban studies and uh, the city are very much grounded in social sciences, political sociology, urban anthropology, history. So I got um, exposed to this range of disciplines and I understood very much the urban through its interdisciplinarity and its connections to social sciences. Fantastic. Yeah, and I got mentored particularly by anthropologists and historians and uh, political scientists. So one of the questions that really spoke the most to me and I was the most intrigued by when I was doing my fieldwork was uh, questions related to power. Sure. Who decides? Why is is this thing this particular way? Uh, at the time, there were a lot of visitors who came to Beirut to, you know, to give us courses and seminars and participate in conferences. And we were asked as students to take them around in the city, which I did. Uh, I mean, the anecdote at the time was I was going to open a tour operator tour, I mean, a tour <laughs> operator agency of Dahiye because it was a part of the city that nobody dared to visit. Yeah. And um, I was born in Hari Tahrik and raised there. Right. So I was very familiar with the area streets and the neighborhoods and you know when I used to take people around they started asking me questions and the ones that spoke to me the most were like why is Hezbollah so powerful there what is Hezbollah doing here 
And I decided to take up these questions from an urban perspective and look at the spatial production mechanisms of this political slash religious party. Fantastic. And Mona, can I just, can I stop you there for a second? Just sure. before we delve deeper into into Hezbollah and the urban aspects. I'm just mm-hmm. curious, was there a particular reason why you decided that, that architecture was the thing for you to study at university? Oh, yeah, that was a much more, you know, classical um, trajectory. I mean, I come from a family who's who looks pretty much at possible careers from a professional perspective. So, you know, I was oriented to consider architecture as a career because I was good in certain disciplines. I knew how to draw. My father is an architect slash engineer. So it was sort of a uh, direction I didn't think much of, and I got I landed into. Right. Like, okay. So, like many other uh, students at the time, I discovered my propensity for social sciences as I was studying at UB. I did a minor in fi- philosophy. I took a lot of courses in sociology, but I never considered, you know, social sciences or an academic career as a possibility. I'm, uh, I'm actually the first uh, academic in in my family from both sides. Wow, Mabruk. Well, that's that's very exciting. <laughs> right, right. I realized much later that this is uh, this is a shift. Uh, you know, I'm, my parents at the time, I remember, were like, why do you want to do a doctorate degree if you already <laughs> have a bachelor degree in architecture? But, you know, they um, they encouraged me to shift into teaching. The shift into teaching was, was more convincing to them. But, you know, abandoning the, the design profession... It was a very conscious decision I undertook in, at the time in 1995, and I decided that I want to be a researcher, and I understood that research can be a career. And mm. I try very much to now to disseminate that piece of knowledge around me, because we're still in a context where, you know, studying and getting trained in social sciences is not very positively perceived, I would say, in society. It's as if, uh, I mean, at least in some parts of society. Sure. Okay. Thank you for that little um, little mm. detour. Uh, I just thought it'd be useful to, to contextualize some of your, sure. some of your thoughts. Mm-hmm. So. It was during your master's that you were asked to become a, a tour a tour guide, essentially. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was, you know, it was the time when you get exposed to all these people you're reading and you're so excited that they're here. And, you know, the uh, people in the university encourage you to take them around the city. So I would put them in the car and go around and drive in Dahi and then park the car somewhere and walk in a neighborhood. So, yeah, the field aspect of things was very crucial, I would say, in my yeah. early okay. training. Do you remember some of the reactions that, that these French scholars had when they, when they were taken to Dahir, which, as you say, at that point must have been quite, um, quite distant and quite close mm-hmm. to, to um, mm-hmm. maybe Western academics? Well, sure, you know, um, uh, we had... Most of them had the very stereotypical reading of Hezbollah being a terrorist military organization. And at the time, I started doing some fieldwork for my master's thesis that showed that Hezbollah was also managing a, a range of professional organizations that dealt with social and urban services. So we had this very interesting conversation where I was also trying to show that there's something else happening on the ground that may explain the the legitimacy of Hezbollah and why people would choose to rally 
yeah. such a party. So these conversations were interesting, and I was lucky to to have them with people who were interested in processes of mobilization, of uh, you know uh, social networks, of uh, spatial production, of uh, city making. So this was the type of conversation I had. I think I wouldn't have had them with uh, U.S. scholars. So yeah. in that sense, uh, you know, they encouraged me to explore more the party from um, from a meso and a micro perspective rather than from a geopolitical perspective. And nothing was written at the time about Hezbollah from these case of analysis. Uh, and I ended up signing up to do my PhD with a political science professor. His name is Jean-Pierre Godin, who had nothing to do with the Middle East and who was a scholar of comparative politics of South uh, European, of South European countries, France, Italy, and Spain. And I think it was one of the best decisions I've made because he helped me l- read uh, Hezbollah through tropes that had to do with political sociology, political legitimacy, social mobilization, uh, organizational analysis, institutional analysis, rather than uh, privileging lenses of Middle East studies that looked at Hezbollah solely as a terrorist group or a military organization. Mm. That's, that's really interesting. And I think looking back on it, it must have been such an exciting project for you and for for scholarship mm. generally, because a lot of the stuff that's been produced after, uh, or in recent years, perhaps I should say, is um, is more looking at Hezbollah as a as a militia, as an armed organization. Mm-hmm. So to look at it in this completely different way, I think is really powerful. Mm. I was, you know, it was I was very passionate at, about it at the time because I was also discovering fieldwork, and it was the time where Hezbollah was rather open to researchers. Right. So I was able to establish early on um, uh, strong relationships with various uh, organization heads and members, uh, and whom I visited very regularly, whom I spent a lot of time in their institutions observing what was happening. Uh, I also managed to do a lot of fieldwork with residents and dwellers uh, in the area and, and, you know, follow certain um, projects and initiatives and events that were happening at the time. Uh, I have, as an example, uh, the public agency project of ELISAR, which was happening simultaneously with Solidaire. So it was the other reconstruction, post-war reconstruction project Mm. that was happening in Beirut in the mid-1990s. And it was a big part of the project to actually understand and document the, the negotiations that were happening at the time between Hezbollah, Amal, and Hariri to initiate this uh, project. So I was there, I would say, at a time where Hezbollah was becoming more and more Lebanonized and doing more and more of this mundane, ordinary um, Lebanese negotiations and bargaining that other political parties do. And this was something that was very uh, strange for scholars or, uh, you know, journalists or analysts to observe because they only saw the resistance military arm of it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I was building all the works of uh, Judith Hari and Nizar Hamzi, who were, I think, among the only scholars at the time that were that showed this organizational aspect also of Hezbollah. And I was trying to dig 
deeper and to also show the links to the urban, to the spatial, to the production of space and of a, of a territory that is Dahi, that is called and named with this name that fascinated me. Why is it called Dahi? Why do, do people refer to it as Dahi, which means uh, suburb in Arabic? So I did the you know, I did a chapter on that as well. So, right. you know, I was young and very much uh, following whatever I found in the field. So there was Elisar. I would research Elisar. The name of Dahi intrigued me. I would start a, a series of interviews on that. And it was it was a really like very fertile times for fieldwork for me. I can imagine. It sounds so exciting. And I can hear the passion coming out in your voice still. Mm, yes. is, it's wonderful. Yeah, I miss that, actually. I'm at a stage in my career where we have less and less time yeah. to undertake fieldwork and to talk with, you know, people and to be able to understand more, uh, you know, to have this insider view of, of course, things. Yeah. Unfortunately, as we as we get more and more trained into academia, we get farther from um, what what made us join this, <laughs> this uh, profession in the first place. Yeah, there's an irony there somewhere, I'm sure. Right, but, right. Um, Mona, not all of our listeners will be familiar with, with urban studies and spatial mm-hmm. approaches. So I wonder, I mean, I, I find them absolutely fascinating and think they've got so much to add to, to, to a range of different disciplines and can shed light on so many forces. But... Can you just just give a brief overview of of, of what you think um, urban studies offers to to helping us understand the the region and and political life in Lebanon and Beirut, etc. Of course, yeah. I mean, it's very important to start by saying that, you know, the urban and spatial or the built environment is not just the backdrop where a social phenomenon happens. So that's, you know, like the premise where urban studies begins. It's not a context. It's not a stage. The urban is a major ingredient of social um, social dynamics, social patterns, and uh, social drivers. So like we, you know, we're trained to uh, pay attention to gender, to age, to income, uh, the people who are sensitive to spatial theory, urban theory, urban forces, uh, have a much richer analysis of these social and political and economic phenomena when they realize that there's, we need to also look at relationships, mm. social relationships, economic relationships, as they take part and use space. So, you know, uh, often um, the Two major theoreticians of urban theory are Henri Lefebvre and David Harvey. They're, uh, they have a Marxist approach to understanding space, but it's very interesting as well because it puts space at the center of the political and the economic, economic and of the social. So the idea is that that comes from Lefebvre is that space is produced. So space does not just exist uh, neutrally. You have actors that have produced space, that have conceived it according to a certain vision, image, representation they have. The best example is to think about, you know, a state that wants to to uh, exercise its power and that uh, plans cities in a way where it can control and organize it and show a certain uh, uh, um, power in that space. Think about Napoleon Bonaparte uh, planning, replanning Paris in the 19th century and uh, building all these huge boulevards 
to, for the the army and the soldiers to walk through and to control all the poor neighborhoods. Planning is used as a tool of power to instill uh, to instill authority and to portray authority. Uh, this space is also practiced by people, so people use it, uh, move within it, navigate it according to how the, uh, the state conceives it. So we go to work using certain streets, certain roads, and we practice the space. But also people have very strong agency, as uh, sociology and anthropology teaches us. And uh, people also reappropriate space, claim it and change it in ways that suits their preference and their desires. So this triad of space, of conceived space, practice space, and lived space, this is the spatial triad that Henri Lefebvre taught us, helps us to understand the city as a, as a political economy that is produced by a variety of political, economic, business actors that is practiced by people and reproduced by these people through their appropriations. And once we understand this, I would say, this dynamic aspect of cities, we're able to understand much better these cycles of production. And this is where David Harvey comes in, because Harvey also teaches us how to look at space through property, mm. through real estate, sure. and, and through economic production. You know, uh, land and property as key ingredients of capitalism that are used by political economic actors to reproduce their power, and where cities become key elements of this reproduction of capitalism and neoliberalism. So with these frameworks, the urban and the political are very much intersecting. And I think Beirut is an amazing laboratory where you see this, where you see political actors, business actors very much enmeshed in the production of cities, where the property and real estate is an integral part of, you know, the political economy model, which is currently collapsing. Yeah. Uh, you know, cities are at the heart of these financialization processes, these capital accumulation cycles. Of course. And given the, the heavily urbanized nature of, of the Middle East, I think it's it's so very important that we address mm-hmm. and acknowledge this this intersectionality that, that you're talking about there. Absolutely. I think a, a lot of people are aware of, of the work of Solidaire and, and the Hariri family in, in, mm-hmm. in transforming urban environments and, and space across Beirut. But could you tell us a little bit about, about Hezbollah's role in, in this spatial um, performance, I guess, or this spatial yeah, transformation? Well, that's a great question because this is very much under research. I haven't worked as much as I would have liked on it. And I hope many people will be inspired from our discussion and take up such exploration. Uh, What I can tell you is more, you know, the role that Hezbollah played in relation to spatial production projects in the post-war era phase of Lebanon. Now, more as a Political, political slash religious party managing a large chunk of uh, South Beirut, Hezbollah's approach was to uh, uh, enable a lot of the pri- private sector to operate. And in that sense, it would qualify as a neoliberal a- actor as much as Hariri would because this is someone who celebrated private property, private sector. Uh, an example would be the production of housing. Yeah. Uh, 
among the many things that Hezbollah provides, they don't directly provide access to housing. What they do is that they have networks with with real estate developers that build housing projects. And, you know, it's through these clientelistic relationships that people have access to housing. So it relies very much on a neoliberal model to produce and provide access to housing to its own constituency. It's not like it's building its own social housing projects that are subsidized by its budgets. That's really interesting. Yeah, that's a first example where you see the private property dimension. Yeah. Uh, Another is uh, the Elisar project I mentioned earlier, which is a post-war reconstruction project that sought to liberate the real the um, (coughs) sorry, the coastal areas of South Beirut so all the areas south of Ramlit al-Bayda up to Uzai, from the um, uh, uh, informal settlements that uh, developed there during the civil war. So the idea was to liberate the, the coast, uh, generate real estate value, and move, relocate the people into social housing units. The project is called Elisar by the name of the Queen of Carthage, a very symbolic also gesture in that. And the project was con- first conceived as a real estate company like Solidaire, but Hezbollah and Amal came in and negotiated so it doesn't operate through that uh, mechanism. And they pushed for it to operate through what we call a public agency. So it's not about expropriating the rights of the owner, but it's about expropriating 25% of the land for public usage. The project was uh, approved, and there's a decree that actually uh, makes it exist, and we have a, a public agency by the name of Elisar in there, but it was never implemented. That's a longer story. Uh, the point here is that the way Hezbollah negotiated for this project to happen, again, you see here that you know the neoliberal approach to urbanism was very strong. So it was not about you know uh, preserving the public uh, coast for public usage, but it was more to develop it into tourist resorts. Mm. So, uh, again, you see uh, that when they have an opportunity to work on the urban, the approach is a neoliberal approach that gives primacy to the private property, to economic growth, to capital accumulation. A third example that's more recent is their role in rebuilding Harit Tahrik after the Israeli war on Lebanon in 2006 where, again, there was an opportunity to approach public space in different ways than uh, commonly done in Beirut. And again, here, the approach was not to to uh, to expand public space for people, but rather to protect the public, uh, the private property of uh, uh, dwellers in Harit Tahrik. So I think that that would cover <laughs> their positionality vis-a-vis, you know, the urban and the production of the city. It's really interesting hearing hearing those reflections. But but as you say, it's not just a sort of an independent act or an independent process. Mm-hmm. That all of this takes place within a broader web of of interactions where where the city is is simultaneously the stage and an actor, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. so what do you think that the repercussions are in terms of, of these actions for, for other parts of Beirut? Because it's also so interwoven. Absolutely. I mean Every sectarian group uh, has this approach to, you know, consolidating its political territory and making sure, you know, that the political territory becomes an integral part of sectarianism and its uh, uh, reproduction. 
uh, and the city or the metropolitan area of Beirut becomes fragmented into these territories led by different sectarian political groups that operate with that more or less same logic. What happens is that the public realm shrinks more, more and more, and people have less and less access to collective spaces where they can, you know, be, exchange, interact, and where a collective outside of these sectarian groups can be nurtured and grow. Yeah. And, you know, here the link to what's happening today in uh, Lebanon is very direct because today what we're seeing in the streets is a very strong uh, claim to recreate that collective we that is not sectarian, that is outside of these polari sectarian polarizations and these uh, political territories. It's a claiming also of spaces, not only squares and, um, and you know, these central uh, open areas like you see in Beirut, but even, you know, there are people standing on highways uh, in Jaladib or in like a small Sahat in the towns and villages where the protests are happening. So even, you know, outer spaces where people can gather are being taken over and claimed as spaces where people can come together and produce another political society. So it's it's essentially the reimagining of of space, and absolutely of sp of urban politics. I would say of yeah. a political imaginary that is also social and cultural that transcends these boundaries that all these actors have been, you know, so good at consolidating over the past three decades. And that's what makes it such a powerful set of of movements, as you say. Mm -hmm. It's it's the rejection of of three decades worth of of power and control and, and regulation. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, because all this is very much, uh, I mean, this is produced and reproduced uh, by, uh, you know, implementing certain laws at the expense of others, uh, by legislating in ways that advance this political economy that is exclusive and that is uh, uh, unequal, that strengthens certain groups and certain economic models at the expense of others, etc. So this is really uh, very institutionalized in, in various ways, structural ways, systemic ways. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm glad you, you brought that structural dimension up because as, as an outsider watching this, it strikes me that there is a perhaps a slightly philosophical clash of, of structure and agency here. We've seen the, mm -hmm. the images and the videos of, of protesters occupying um, previously symbolic buildings, transforming them and occupying prominent highways and sending out these wonderful messages. And that's, it strikes me that that is a, an attempt to challenge or reimagine these structures. Absolutely. Absolutely. It has a very strong symbolic value. It's happening more and more in the everyday as well. The public shaming that's happening over the past week for political elites that think that they have nothing to do with what's happening is also another indicator that people know that this is a system that was produced by various individuals, even the ones that remained silent or thought that, you know, they could be neutral in that. Yeah. So Mona, um, we've taken up a lot of your time, but if I may, I'd like to just ask one final question, and it mm -hmm. it may require a, a crystal ball. But where do you see this going from here, with with people still on the streets, with with protesters still occupying 
and trying to reimagine spaces and political life and urban politics. Where do you mm-hmm. see this going from here, if you can? Yes, it's of course a very difficult question. Um, and I would say things are so much in flux, but at the same time, what seems to me to be more... Um, more certain, especially after uh, the fact that, I mean, we've been on the street for almost three months now. It's almost uh, 80 days. Uh, I think this is going to take longer than people had uh, thought. People bet on the fact that people are going to get tired and they're going to uh, go back home and that uh, things will go back to um, business as usual. This is definitely not going to be the case. There's a very strong... uh, political consciousness that um, has emerged among various strata of society. And I think this is very interesting to to monitor because we're not just talking about young people who are mob- mobilized and angry and who understand are increasingly more aware about the political and economic intricacies of the crisis and the financial intricacies of the, the crisis. I'm so impressed with the level of knowledge and how it's circulating around and yeah. how people are really learning very quickly to uh, to read the financial crisis, which is a very complex one. Of course. But, there's, but it, beyond the young, there's also a middle class that's mobilized, a middle class that has invested a lot of efforts in, uh, in the country for the past three decades. So we're talking about uh, private sector people who have built enterprises and who have built some of them small even industries and who are now unable to access their uh, their savings to uh, secure the livelihoods of their families who are worried about their parents whose savings are endangered uh, and who are also angry and many of them are also on the streets protesting so the intergenerational connections is very new you're not only seeing young people in the streets but you're also seeing these middle class and these elderly uh, or these senior people on the streets yelling as hard as the younger crowds. So there's something really new in these uprisings that we haven't seen before. And it's also the crystallization of uh, years of mobilization that have been happening against the political system in Lebanon that have matured in a way that's quite interesting. So I wouldn't be able to predict the outcome, but what I can say is that there are very promising um, indications of the organizing of a political society that transcends sectarian divides and religious divides and even gender and um, and uh, uh, class divides maybe class wise we're not there are there are portions of the population which we're not seeing yet on the streets but still i think it's hard to tell now but there's a lot of anger brewing uh, more collapses are expected to happen in the months to come, which will bring more people down. Yeah. How much the street is going to be able to pressure the decision makers, the ruling elite to uh, hold early elections, to uh, uh, issue certain laws such as the independence and independent justice, such as a government that will be able to issue, I mean, to operate with exceptional powers and issue laws that will allow us to at least set the financial crisis on the right track. That's a big question, but this is what people are lobbying for. This is what people are, you know, occupying the streets for. 
Well, thank you so much for sharing that, Mona, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. It's been Me really too. Thank you so much, Simon, and thanks oh. for doing this great job. And my pleasure. And as always, thank you for listening. Until next time.